Hello, it's your favorite Bible teacher back again for another lecture in our spring quarter series. This is lecture number five for the good folks who attend Bible class at St. Joan of Arc in Phoenix. We will, in a moment, be returning to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We'll begin in verse 12, the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and begin to walk our way through John's remembrance of the Passion Narrative. Now, before we begin, let's open, as we do each week, with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for bringing us together online to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God, our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit he promised us to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. And grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, as I sit down to record this lecture in my Chandler home office, I've just learned that uh, Arizona will be in the sort of lockdown, shelter-in-place, stay-safe-at-home mode at least until May 15th. So that means that I'll be continuing my practice of making these recordings, hoping that uh, perhaps by late May we might be able to gather at least a couple of times, perhaps, in the beautiful parish hall of St. Joan of Arc. If not, I will complete eight lectures as part of this spring quarter series, and we'll look forward then to regrouping and continuing our journey through the Bible in August, when I will present my four-week summer series entitled, A Month with Moses, the Man and Friend of God. So, having said that, let's return to the Gospel of John and to the 12th chapter. We left off after the wonderful story of the anointing of Jesus in advance of his suffering, death, and burial that took place in Bethany, that is, the location and home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Remember, at the end of last week's lecture, we made note of the fact in verse 9 of John chapter 12, that a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was gathering for a meal at the home of a man they called Simon, who used to be a leper. And they came to listen to the engaged conversation of what would have been a formal triclinium meal that would have taken place in an outdoor setting. So people would have been invited and available to listen to the engaging conversation around the table. John reminds us that they came not only because of Jesus, this is John chapter 12, verse 9, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. The chief priests, in fact, by that time, had plotted also to kill Lazarus because many of the Jews were turning away and believing in Jesus as his claim to be Messiah had been validated by this magnificent miracle of calling Lazarus back from the dead after four days in the tomb because of him. Now on the next day, which would be for us 
Sunday morning, when the great crowd that had come to the feast in anticipation of celebrating Passover, which would begin on the following Friday evening at sundown, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. He was, in fact, in Bethany and was planning to make an entry into the holy city. They took their palm branches and went out to meet him. That's why we call this particular day Palm Sunday. And when they saw him arrive at the height of the crest, the Mount of Olives, they cried out in their own native language, Hosanna, which means save us. And then blessed is he who comes in the name of, and I'm going to add a word, our Lord, in contradistinction to the person on the throne of Rome who claimed also to be Lord. He is the King of Israel. Now we know well the story behind why Jesus chose to come to that location riding a gentle beast of burden. He wanted to lessen any expectations of some sort of militaristic entry into the city. And so he had made prior arrangements to find a donkey, a she-donkey, in fact, and sat upon it, as it is written, Fear no more, O daughter Zion, see your king, verse 15, comes to you seated on a donkey's colt. And again, lessening militaristic and nationalistic expectations. It would have been a rather comical scene. Jesus clip-clopping along, riding this female species of a donkey, an animal far smaller than even the male. His disciples did not understand. John reminds us this at first. But when Jesus had been glorified, they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done this for him. Now again, after he had been glorified, that is, after his resurrection. And we know, because of our journey together through the Gospel of Luke, that he then spent 40 days and 40 nights teaching and completing his commission to his disciples before ascending into heaven. So things began to make sense after he was revealed in his glory, having conquered the grave. Now the crowd, in verse 17, back to our story, that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and had raised him from death, continued to testify. This was also why the crowd went to meet him, because they heard that he had done this sign. Again, the subject of last week's lecture, you can read John chapter 11 to recall the significance of that event. So the Pharisees, religious leaders, said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Those particular Pharisees are testifying about the huge crowds that have surrounded Jesus and are leading him down the Mount of Olives. Their plan has been dashed to the ground. In fact, that particular day, and this is unique to the Gospel of John, there were some Greeks among those who had come up to worship at the feast. We would call those Greeks God-fearers. Later, in the book of Acts, we'll identify Luke as a Greek in that sense, a God-fearer who's interested in things involving the Jewish religion, short of being received as a full member and submitting to circumcision. 
So these Greeks who are there to celebrate the Passover are religiously attuned to sort of the ebb and flow of Jewish faith and custom. And they had come uh, up to the temple to worship at the feast. Now they found Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Could you arrange a meeting? Philip went and told Andrew, an apostle senior to himself, and Andrew and Philip then went together and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That is, yes. Remember in John chapter 10, Jesus had stated that there are sheep in additional flocks that he's also the shepherd of who will hear his voice and will respond to the message of salvation? Well, here we see evidence of that. These Greeks, these Gentiles, who are enamored of things Jewish, have now become compelled by the teaching of Jesus and his witness and the miracles and signs he's committed, and they're desirous of knowing more. It's worked, basically. In response, verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Amen. He says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it multiplies itself. It produces much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will preserve it for eternal life. Remember, to hate something means to detach yourself from it. It doesn't necessarily involve negative emotion. So, whoever hates his life in this world and is willing, therefore, to detach himself from the life that they've been living will preserve it for eternal life. For whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there also will my servant be. The Father will honor whoever serves me. And Jesus says, at this particular moment in time, I'm troubled. Yet, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. I know where this next week will find me. Friday afternoon, hanging on a cross. Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? It was for this purpose that I came to this hour. So I say, rather, Father, glorify your name. Honor your name. May your will be done. And then, having said that, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And the crowd there heard it. Some said it was thunder, but others said that was an angel speaking to him. Jesus answered and said to them, This voice did not come for my sake, but rather for yours. Now is the time of judgment on this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And who is the ruler of the world to whom Jesus speaks? Well, it's Satan. It's the devil. It's his adversary who has been controlling people through their fear of death. That's actually something that's taught in the letter to the Hebrew. Satan has control over people because they fear death. And of course, this judgment on this world will come about and the ruler of this world will be driven out because Jesus is going to conquer the grave. Because he says in verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, 
a reference to how he will die as a victim crucified. I will draw everyone to myself. John reminds us in verse 33, he said this indicating the kind of death he would die. And we remember all the way back to that conversation with Nicodemus, right? In John chapter 3. In John chapter 3 and verse 14, Jesus says, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, referencing the story of the bronze serpent's crafting and ascent uh, on a pole in Numbers chapter 21, verse 9, just as Moses lifted up the servant in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 9, if you looked at the serpent that had bitten you and was therefore responsible for certain death, you would live. And so Jesus is making a connection again to that story of Numbers chapter 21 and to the conversation he had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, in verse 32 of John chapter 12. When I am lifted up from the earth, crucified, I will draw everyone to myself. All eyes will be drawn to me, and it will be through my death that you will be saved. Now, John reminds us, he said this, indicating the kind of death he would die. Some in the crowd, though, responded and said, We have heard from the law, that is, we've been taught by some of our rabbis, that the Messiah remains forever. If that's true, then how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? That is, he would die a horrific death as a victim crucified by Roman decree. And who is this Son of Man that you speak of. We know it's a messianic title. It's been extracted from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. And it's clear to most that that is the way that Jesus in self-referential terms reveals himself to be the Messiah. Jesus responds to them in verse 35. The light, me, will be among you only a little while for the next seven days. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness may not overcome you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where he is going. While you have the light, again, for the next seven days, believe in the light, that you may become children of the light. And after he said this, Jesus left and hid from them. That is, he removed himself from the Temple Mount, and he went back to Bethany. In verse 37, although he had performed so many signs in their presence, healing the man who had been born blind, calling Lazarus back from the grave, restoring the ambulatory ability of a man paralyzed for 38 years. In John chapter 5, although he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe him, in order that the word which Isaiah the prophet spoke might be fulfilled. Lord, quoted the prophet, who has believed our preaching, to whom has the might of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, John remembers, they could not believe. Because again, Isaiah said, he, meaning God, blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, so that they might not see with their eyes and understand with their heart and be converted. And if converted, then I would heal them. They, they believed they could see. They believed they could hear, but they couldn't. They were blind and they were deaf. Isaiah, John reminds us in verse 41, said this because 
he saw the glory of the Messiah and spoke about him. Nevertheless, many, even among the authorities, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not acknowledge it openly in order not to be expelled from the synagogue. Remember the fear of the parents of the man born blind brought before the Pharisees in a tribunal setting. They preferred human praise to the glory of God. Let's pause and go back to verse 41 just briefly. Isaiah said this because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Where did that happen? Well, hold your place here and find your way to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 was a chapter most significant to the early Christian community because it appears that some 700 plus years before Jesus, the prophet had received a vision from God which detailed who the Messiah would be and that detailed prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus. So let's keep that in mind as we look at Isaiah chapter 53. The prophet begins, Who would believe what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a sapling before him. That would be a reference to Jesus as an infant child growing up like a sapling before God, like a shoot from the parched earth. Now, since he was born a poor child and placed in a manger in a house in Bethlehem, in verse 2, he had no majestic bearing to catch our eye, no beauty to draw us to him. He was spurned and avoided by men as an adult, a man of suffering, knowing pain, like one from whom you turn your face spurned, and we held him in no esteem as a victim crucified, as we turned our faces away in horrific pain. Yet it was our pain, verse 4, that he bore. Our sufferings he endured. We thought of him as stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted, a victim of crucifixion. He was pierced for our sins, literally hands and feet, crushed for our iniquity. He bore the punishment that makes us whole. By his wounds, we were healed. We had all gone astray like sheep, all following our own way. But the Lord laid upon him the guilt of us all. Jesus was the final Passover sacrificial offering. Though harshly treated, he submitted at the sight of the crucifixion. He did not open his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter or a sheep silent before shearers. He did not open his mouth. Seized and condemned. In verse 8, he was taken away, and who would have thought any more of his destiny? That's it. He's going to be crucified, dismembered, and forgotten. For he was cut off from the land of the living, struck for the sins of his people. But, and imagine this, 700 plus years before Jesus, he was given a grave among the wicked, a burial place with evil doers, though he had done no wrong, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Now, he was given a grave among the wicked. That should have been his fate, the fate of a crucified victim, and yet he was buried among the wealthy. And if we allow ourselves to look at alternative translations, and I will do so looking at the NIV translation of this same chapter, we have a difference of interpretive decision. In the NIV translation, which I find a bit more accurate in prophetic translations, like we're reading now in Isaiah chapter 
53. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 9, in the New International Version, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, rather than he was given a grave among the wicked, a burial place with evildoers. Why the distinction? Assigned a grave with the wicked, but buried among the wealthy? Well, because he was interred in the tomb temporarily of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, right? His sentence of death should have resulted in his body being torn down off the cross, and yet his body found its way into a new tomb, the tomb of a wealthy man. Now, coming back to Isaiah chapter 53, it was the Lord's will to crush him with pain by making his life a reparation offering, he shall see his offspring and shall lengthen his days, and the Lord's will shall be accomplished through him. Because of his anguish, he shall see the light. Because of his knowledge, he shall be content. My servant, the just one, shall justify the many. Their iniquity he will bear. Therefore I will give him his portion among the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the mighty, because he surrendered himself to death, which is exactly what Jesus did. And Isaiah saw it 700 plus years before the events actually happened and was counted among the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors, remembering the early Christian community, recalling this chapter of the prophet Isaiah and noting that even on the way to his crucifixion, as he was being crucified in the Gospel of Luke, he cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. So, when I return now to John chapter 12, and we read in verse 41, Isaiah said this because he saw his glory and spoke about him. That's the reference. The reference is Isaiah chapter 53. Now, to bring the chapter to a conclusion, in verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not only in me, but also in the one who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees the one who sent me. I came into the world as light, so that everyone who believes in me might not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not observe them, I do not condemn him. For I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And again, the consistency of this gospel narrative, the summation of John chapter 3 verses 16 and following. The apostle reminds members of his church that God so loved the world, John 3 16, that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish but might have eternal life. Watch now, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather sent his son that the world might be saved through him. That's the theological summation of the Apostle John, and it's based on the teaching of Jesus in John chapter 12, verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not observe them, I do not condemn him, for I have not come to condemn the world. I've come to save the world. Whoever rejects me, verse 48, and does not accept my work, words has something to judge him, the word that I spoke. It will condemn him on the last day, because I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. 
So what I say, I say as the Father told me. Now that brings us then, believe it or not, to chapter 13. And chapter 13 opens on Thursday night. The event we know as the Last Supper. So John knows that Jesus engages in public teaching on days Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and the morning hours of Thursday, and doesn't include any of that sort of public engagement, because he knows that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have covered all of that material quite well. Rather, John will focus on particular nuances and parts of the events associated with the Jewish Seder meal that were not included in the synoptic gospel accounts. Although Matthew and others were certainly eyewitnesses of these experiences, they weren't part of their gospel narration. And so John provides us additional insight. Now we come to chapter 13. Before the feast of Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to pass from this world to the Father. He loved his own in the world, and he loved them to the very end. The devil had already induced Judas, son of Simon the Iscariot, to hand him over. So, during supper, fully aware that the Father had put everything into his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God, he rose from supper and took off his outer garment and he took a towel and he tied it around his waist. What part of the meal are we participating in? Well, we know a great deal about a Jewish Seder. The Jewish Seder meal is an ordered recounting of the events of the original Passover experience. The word seder means order. And so in Hebrew, if you spoke modern Hebrew, if you want to say everything is okay, you say beseder. And in fact, if someone comes up to you and says, in Hebrew, manishma means how are things going? You say beseder, which means all is ordered in my life. It's extracted from that liturgy of the recounting of the events of salvation history that are detailed in the book of Exodus. The Seder meal is uh, lined out by the consumption of four different cups. The third cup, the cup of Eucharistic significance, is the third and called the cup of redemption. And that's consumed at the end of the meal. Now, there are a number of occasions during the preparations leading up to eating the meal, where you do a ceremonial washing of your hands. The Jews wash their hands all the time, right? They're great in the COVID-19 era. Let's just think about it in that context. And that is true as well during the Seder meal. So just before the main meal is to be served, they typically wash their hands yet again. The water, the basin, the towel are available for that purpose. Jesus seizes that opportunity to do something that they never saw coming, but was possible because all of the elements necessary were present around the table. He got up unexpectedly before the meal was officially served and took off his outer garment. What's he doing? And he took a towel and he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and rather than just pass it among the disciples, he began, one by one, to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with the towel around his waist. Eventually, having begun on his left with John, he made his way all the way around the table, 
to Peter, who was seated on his right side, who said to him, Master, do you really think I'm going to let you wash my feet? And the response of Jesus to Peter, what I am doing, you don't understand now, but you will later. And Peter said to him, no, you will never wash my feet. I, I've watched you now wash the feet of all the 11 others, and I'm not going to allow you to humble yourself in this way. But Jesus' response, remembered well by John, unless I wash your feet, Peter, you will have no inheritance with me. You won't be among us. Everyone else submitted to my servant gesture. So Simon Peter said, Master, then, not only my feet, wash my hands and wash my head as well. And Jesus said to him, Peter, whoever has bathed, obviously in anticipation of celebrating the Passover, they had, there's no need to wash in that way. You need to have your feet washed, for you are clean all over, but not all. For he knew who would betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and put his garments back on and reclined at table again, he said to them, do you realize what I have done for you? Do you understand what's just happened? And they don't. There's no response. So he answers his own question. You call me teacher, rabbi. You call me master, Lord. And rightly so, for indeed I am both of those things. Now, if I, therefore, the Lord and the rabbi, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you a model to follow, so that as I have done for you, you should also do. Amen, amen, I say to you, no servant is greater than his master, nor any messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you understand this, blessed are you if you do it. And this is why Christians gathering together in prayer on Holy Thursday, the night remembering the Seder meal of Jesus we call the Last Supper, participate in the annual experience of washing each other's feet. We are doing what Jesus asked us to remember to do. Now he goes on to speak about the washing of the feet. And he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know those whom I have chosen, but so that scripture might be fulfilled. And he quotes then the psalm, the one who ate my food has raised his heel against me, a psalm of David in reference to the fact that one of his sons, in fact, his eldest son at the time, Absalom, had risen up and was participating in a palace coup to drive David out of Jerusalem. One who ate my food has raised his heel against me. In verse 19, from now on, I am telling you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe that I am, that he is revealing himself to be God's son. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, when he had said this, Jesus was deeply troubled, and he testified, I say to you, one of you seated around this table so that you are within earshot will betray me. As he said this, the disciples looked at one another at a loss as to whom he could possibly mean. One of his disciples, 
the one whom Jesus loved and felt the greatest attachment to, we would say, was reclining at Jesus's side, on the left side of Jesus, both of them reclining at the table, leaning in and supporting themselves on their left forearm. He can turn and speak to Jesus very easily and quietly. So Simon Peter got his attention because Simon Peter was on the right side of Jesus, a side equally important and significant, but unable to attain this intimacy of conversation. He made sure John could ask the following question. Simon Peter nodded to him to find out whom he meant. And so, knowing that he had been commissioned by Peter to sleuth this out, he leaned back against Jesus' chest and said to him, Master, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I hand this morsel after I have dipped it. Now, the morsel would have been a piece of unleavened bread. And this would suggest that Jesus had only recently leaned forward on the table to take hold of that morsel and had not yet decided what bowl of uh, delight he was going to dip it in. While he leaned forward, that uh, provided the opportunity for Peter to get the attention of John and indicate to him he needed to ask Jesus that specific question. He leans into Jesus. He asks the question, and then he leans forward to dip that morsel into a bowl and will indicate who the traitor is by handing it to him. And when he does so, John can regain eye contact with Peter and can identify the one who would betray the Lord. And so Jesus, in verse 26, answers John's question. The betrayer is the one to whom I hand this morsel after I have dipped it. So he leaned forward and dipped the morsel in a bowl and then handed it to Judas, the son of Simon the Iscariot. After he took the morsel, Satan entered into him. So Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, as he leaned forward, he had to lean forward and across the body of John because Judas is seated to the left of John and to access Judas, John has to lean back and then can indicate to Peter that it is Judas who is the betrayer. It all works itself out perfectly around that table that particular night. Now, after he took the morsel in verse 27, Satan entered him. So Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, none of those reclining at the table realized why he said this to him. Some thought that since Judas kept the money bag, Jesus had told him, go and buy what we need for the feast. We're running out of food or perhaps to give something to the poor. So he took the morsel and left at once and it was night. Now, if this is a Passover meal, how is it possible that he could buy additional food or that poor people would be available for the purpose of giving them alms? Remember, Jesus is celebrating the Passover on Thursday night. The Passover officially begins on Friday night. But you're given a dispensation to celebrate the Passover on Thursday night because you can celebrate it in this upper room, which is inside the holy city and is just across the city from the beautifully illuminated Temple Mount and its temple, the house of God. So you take the dispensation and you gather for the Passover meal on that Thursday rather than Friday. And because it's Thursday night, every 
kiosk would be open. It would be possible to go out and purchase food in those evening hours. And also the poor would be about waiting for the possibility of receiving alms from well-intentioned pilgrims. Again, a small detail, but important for our consideration. In verse 31, when Judas had left, Jesus said, It's now afoot. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and he will glorify him at once. The plot thickens. Jesus knows where Judas is going to collect a guard, and now the meal will be served. And through the end of chapter 13, throughout the chapter 14, Jesus will continue to teach in the upper, excuse me, in the upper room before they vacate the premises unexpectedly at the end of chapter 14 in order to make their way to the Mount of Olives via the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus in verse 33 says, My children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and as I told the Jewish leaders, where I go, you cannot come. So now I say it to you. That is, I'm going to my death. So I give you a new commandment. You need to love one another, as I have loved you. So you should love one another. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another, if you are attached to one another, as family members are attached to one another, blood relatives are attached to one another, so too should you be attached to each other. This will be new. This will be something the world has never seen. You're not related by blood. You're not members of the same family. Typically, a false messiah could depend on his genealogical family supporting him in his cause. Jesus has no one from that genealogical line in his company. And those who have been called from various and sundry backgrounds have no relationship to one another, but they must now begin to lean into this association of love. A new family is born. The church, men and women, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free people are all one in the family of God. Now Simon Peter wonders what Jesus is talking about. In verse 36, he said to him, Master, where did you say you were going? And Jesus answered, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, though you will follow me later. And we'll pick up on that in John chapter 21, when Jesus speaks to Peter specifically about the way that he will die, stretching out his arms and going where he doesn't want to go. Someone else will dress him and undress him. He will die, a victim crucified. But Peter said to him at this point, Master, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And the response of Jesus, really? Will you lay down your life for me? Peter, I say to you, the rooster will not crow before you deny me this night three times. Now, Peter doesn't imagine that's even remotely possible because he has no idea of what the fate of Jesus will be by dawn of the next day. But we know that Peter fails, not in faith, but in courage. And he not once, twice, but three times denies he even knows the Lord while he awaits the results of the tribunal that Jesus will face in the house of Caiaphas. But 
we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's the subject of future chapters and future lectures. And we've done really well to this point, making our way dutifully uh, to the completion of chapter 12 and to the end of chapter 13. That's all I can do for now, except to remind you of what a great student you are. Thank you for listening, and have a great and blessed day.